we are going to do two weeks on Islam and, and the Muslim faith. I would ask you if you know anybody who is Muslim, who might be interested in coming, to invite them to come next week. This week we'll talk about the origins of the Muslim faith. Next week we'll continue, but we'll delve more seriously into comparisons between the tenets or the beliefs of the Muslim faith and those of the Christian faith. And and it's hopefully done uh, in a non-offensive manner. I, I don't, if you've got a friend who is Muslim, uh, please feel free to invite them. Don't worry that I'm going to stand up here and insult them. Uh, uh, even the PowerPoint, I'll try to be very careful. A lot of people, I hope, might visit this on the internet. If you visit this on the internet and you are uh, of an Islamic faith, I try really hard in the PowerPoint not to use an image of Muhammad because I know that's offensive uh, to those of that faith. Uh, so this is one where I try to be respectful. I try to be upfront and careful with it and, and make sure that we're being objective and we're not going anywhere else. But I try to be very honest and upfront because there are some very profound differences between the Christian faith and, and the faith of Islam. And so I want to do that. Now, as we look at it this morning, Muhammad and Islam part one, I want to tell you that as a man who will be 55 years old before this year is out, assuming I continue to live that long, that there's been a change in my life in 2001. 2001 gave new meaning to 9-1-1 or 9-11. And those of you who are too young to understand don't realize, but when I was growing up, 9-11 was the phone number you punched into a telephone or dialed into a telephone to get an emergency service or vehicle to come someplace. That was the emergency number. As of 2001, 9-11 had a profoundly different meaning. It wasn't an emergency help. It was an act of terror. It was one that took the lives of over 3,000 people. Now, in the process of that, 2001 was a real jolt for me. Regarding Islam, it caused me to go back and to do some deeper studying. See, before 2001, my greatest information for Islam came from a visit with Hakim Olajuwon, a Muslim who gave of himself for two and a half hours one day to be my guest at a fundraiser. Because I figured if Hakeem Olajuwon was coming to the fundraiser, more people would come and give money. And he was gracious to come. It was for some people who had lost limbs in Kosovo. And, 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 and Hakeem gave his time and he sat and took pictures with everybody and autographs. He was so kind. He was so gracious. And it was a very different image of the Muslim faith than that which I ascribed to it after 9-11 with Osama bin Laden. 
And so the questions really start coming up. And when you realize there are over a billion Muslims in the world, we don't know with precision, but somewhere between one out of every four to six human beings on the planet affirms the faith of Islam in some way, shape, form, or fashion. So it's something that's important to figure out. This isn't simply a religion in the Middle East. This is a religious faith that has a large number of adherents, and the number is growing at a very high rate. Not simply from conversion, but the, the Islamic faith, out of all faiths at this point, has the highest birth rate of children being born into it, of any major religion in the world. So, with that as a frame of mind, there are lots of questions that, that I think are, are important ones to ask. You know, why are some Muslims peaceful and others violent, not just violent, violent to the point of death, either killing someone or dying themselves? You know, why is it that Muslims will fight Muslims? Because we hear, oh, they're going to fight the infidels. They'll fight Muslims, fight Muslims. You know, what is the difference between a Sunni Muslim and a Shiite Muslim? We hear about those differences. Do we know what they are? Can we identify them? You know, why are the people in the Muslim world fighting ISIS? ISIS being the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So why are the Muslims fighting against an Islamic State? I think these questions need to be looked at, and these questions will be dealt with within the context of our church history that we're looking at. To do this, we need to take a good look back in history and go down the corridors of time back into the era where we are in our church history class. If you remember at the peak of the Roman Empire, around 117 AD, here is a map of the Mediterranean world, and it shows you uh, the extent and breadth of the Roman Empire. England, down through Spain and Portugal and France and Germany and Italy and Switzerland and Austria, Macedonia, Yugoslavia, Croatia now, uh, uh, and other little countries, uh, all the way over Turkey, Syria, um, uh, Israel, Lebanon, uh, part of Jordan, Egypt, all the way across North Africa till you get back over to Gibraltar. Those were Roman lands. Rome had not conquered much below that northern area of Africa because that's the Saharan Desert. There's really not anything to conquer. Yeah. If you, you see, they went down Egypt with the Nile. There are, there's the Arabian Peninsula, modern Saudi Arabia, which is by and large desert. And then you've got the Tigris and Euphrates that goes down 
And, and, and as you go down that, you've still got Iran that was never really conquered by the Romans. And so Iran, the Parthian Empire, uh, the Scythian Empire is one that we'll talk about in a minute. So by 395, the Roman Empire has been split into two ruling regions. You have the western part, which still includes Italy and the boot of Italy, and then you have the eastern section. And and gradually, the Huns, the Vandals, the Goths, they invade what we now know to be Germany, France, Spain, come down into Gibraltar. They invade Italy. And much of the Western Empire crumbles. And what's left of Rome is being ruled from modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople at the time, Polis, Opal, that part is the Greek word for city. It means literally the city of Constantine, because he built it. So by the time we get into 600, this green shaded area is all that's really left of the Roman Empire. And it's called the Byzantine Empire by a lot of historians. And so with that being the Roman Empire, the Byzantines are constantly struggling against the neighboring countries, the neighboring um, empires. And so the biggest struggle for the Byzantines is this area. We've now pulled out, this is Turkey. This big orange area is the Sisian Empire. Sassian, Sassanian Empire. I keep saying Sisian, and they're going to beat me up. Because they're not Sisians. Uh, Sassanians, and I also misspell it in the paper a couple of times. Sometimes I use two S's, sometimes I use one S. Is that because I'm in on some secret way of spelling? No, it's because I messed up. So... In the map, I have two S's in it, and I couldn't recreate that map without doing like an hour's worth of work, so I just thought I'd apologize to you. The Sassanian Empire was um, very different than the, the Roman Empire, the Greek Roman Empire. Different in many, many different ways. It was left over from the Persian Empire... We don't know the exact roots of it. I can tell you this. That's where the game polo originated. If Ralph Lauren should like know how to spell it, made him a fortune. Um, but polo ori originates in the Sasanian Empire. And so in the process of, of this empire biting into the Roman Byzantine Empire, it goes through stages. Sometimes there are peace accords. Sometimes there are struggles. Sometimes there are peace accords. Sometimes there are struggles. And also, you've got an area in the peninsula of Saudi Arabia that's just an Arabian peninsula. And that's held by Arab tribes. You'll have some cities around the coastal regions. You'll have some towns that spring up around oases. But by and large, those are Arab coastal tribes. And the way their tribes were put together 
is they would have a family. And the family would have its family tent. These are pretty good-sized tents. And so I've got a family tent, and it's mine. Gary, I need your help. Come up here. Now, this is my brother, Gary Greer. If you all don't know Gary, good guy, good brother, Boy Scout, the whole thing. All right, Gary started the Boy Scout troop here in uh, uh, at, our, at our campus, 2007, five years ago. All right, now, Gary has got a different family, but we're related. So he's got his family tent. I've got my family tent, but our tents stay together. He's got his sheep or goats. I got my goats, but, and, and, and we'll try to keep them apart. At times we may let them come. We may swap some goats, but our tents stay together. That's our camp. Now, there are some other people. Let's say you got a daughter. I got four daughters. That means we got five daughters we've got to find husbands for, okay? And I know your daughter. Um, she's an attractive young lady. I have four daughters. They're all stunningly attractive. And we're going to have trouble because all of these men are going to fight. So I tell you what, I love you like a brother. You're in my camp, but I'd like you to go camping over there, okay? So I have my choice of these guys to marry off my daughters. You can pick from those. But we're still kind of related. We're in the same tribe. So every family's got a tent. The tents camp together. Beyond that camp, there are tribes that you're affiliated with. So I may not see Gary in his camp for another year. But when I see him, we're in the same family. And that's the way the Arab tribes were set up. So you've got the Arab tribes. Now, when the Sasanian Empire is fighting the Roman Empire, sometimes the Roman Empire will get the Arabs to help them. Sometimes the Sasanians will get the Arabs to help them. Sometimes the Arabs are just pillaging whomever they want to. They're not helping anybody but themselves. That's the world in the area we need to look at when Muhammad comes in. So, you've got these nomadic tribes, and they are, they're nomads, wandering around with their goat herds in their camps, seeing each other, and in the midst of that comes Muhammad. Muhammad is born around 570. We don't have precise records. When he was born, no one was sitting there with a camera saying, let's take a picture and put it on Facebook. So we don't know for certain. But he's born around 570. That seems to be the best idea. Now, this is a picture of ancient Mecca. I've got an arrow pointing up to this cube, the Kaaba. Ancient Mecca was built around all of these different tribes and families. And Mecca was a watering hole. It had a spring. And so all of these different tribes would come, and they would come to that spring, 
And Mecca was a place where they would worship. And part of what they would worship would be the cube. Now, the cube is not what we see today. It's draped in Egyptian fabric. Today, I believe it's made out of stone. It was probably made out of wood at the time. But inside Mecca was this, it's about a 14-inch stone that was part of what the people worshipped. Now, these people, these Arab tribes were polytheists. They each had their own god. And Mecca collected the gods. They had about 360 idols there. So every family could come worship their idol. It was great for business. Because you've got everybody coming in to worship their idols there in Mecca. They offer sacrifices. It's good for the local economy. The economy is run by a couple of families. And the families would parcel out jobs for various other tribes to do. So it was a a nice integrated area built around this well. Supposedly, the Quran teaches, this well was dug by Abraham. Abraham takes Hagar and Ishmael. You know, let's make sure we're all on the same page. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. From that son will come many nations. Sarah can't have children, the wife of Abraham. So Sarah says, well, we got to help God. You know, God's having trouble getting this thing done. So I've got a handmaiden. Why don't you have sexual relations with her? And then we'll just claim the kid is mine. So Abraham has sexual relations with Hagar, who gives birth to Ishmael. And Sarah decides that wasn't a great idea after all. And says, look what you've done. Now get rid of them. And then ultimately, Sarah does give birth to Isaac. Now, in this process, Hagar and Ishmael are sent out. So the Quran teaches that they went out and they fathered the Arab tribes. And so all of the Arabian descendants are descendants. By the way, that's different than Palestinians. We today will call Palestinians Palestinian Arabs, but the Palestinian people come from the Philistines, which were sea peoples from the Greek islands. They're not true Arabs in this sense. Um, But we'll deal with that when we talk about Arab discord in the Muslim world later. All right, so you've got inside the well this, I mean, inside Mecca, this stone And uh, I mean, this cube, it's about 50 feet by 50 feet by 50 feet. If you go inside it, you've got the 14-inch black stone. You also have Muhammad's sword at this now, today in history. Whoops. You've also got Muhammad's sword, and you've got a letter Muhammad wrote. Uh, And I tell you that because if you ever go over there, unless you're Muslim, you ain't getting in to see it. I searched for a YouTube video. I figure somewhere someone has snuck in there with a little, you know, smartphone and managed to get a video of it. And I thought it'd be really cool to show y'all. 
Um, but if anybody's done that, they have not posted it on the internet. And if they have, I could not find it. So I don't have it for you, but we do know that, that these things, among other things, are inside the cube. Now, let's go back to Muhammad. So Muhammad is born 570. He's orphaned somewhere around, uh, well, his dad dies early and then his mom dies even uh, 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 as well. And so somewhere around the age of 9 to 10, Muhammad comes into contact with a Nestorian monk. Now, you may be saying, what's a Nestorian monk? That's a really good question. Can we take a time out and let me tell you about a Nestorian monk? Okay. About 150 years earlier or so, there was um, a, a, a new bishop put in place of Constantinople. His name was Nestorius. And he was put in place at the time when the church was fighting over the humanity of Christ. They accepted Jesus as God, understood him as God. Those are the claims of the Bible. And the Bible claimed he was human. But the church is trying to figure out this mystery. How can he be human? How can he be God? And so as the church is sorting through that, praying through it, counseling through it, the church declares it's a mystery, but somehow Jesus was fully God and fully human. And so in the process, and, and you know, they, they were not, it took them a while to be happy with the idea that we may not be able to understand all of that ourselves. You know, I, I almost would be skeptical of the Christian faith if you could understand the nature of God. I'm sitting here thinking, if you can understand the nature of God, then he isn't all he's cracked up to be. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not that smart. So I like the fact that there's a faith that says God is so great that he's, tr he's communicating to us, but we don't have him totally figured out. Okay, but anyway, so Nestorius, though, is trying to figure it out. So Nestorius decides that when Mary is pregnant with Jesus, Jesus is not God in her womb. Because, he reasoned, Mary could not carry God in her womb, Mary being a fallen human. So Jesus must have become God upon exiting the birthing canal. So Nestorius challenged accepted orthodox belief that Mary was Theotokos, the, the bearer of God. Theotokos in the Greek. And, in, and he chose to do it in a most profound day. Christmas day. A Christmas sermon. When you're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, he proceeds to stand up as the head of the church in Constantinople and surrounding regions and say on Christmas Day, the Christ child was born and it's a good thing too because he wasn't God when he was in Mary's womb. I don't care what the church says. And the church says, well, we care what we say. And Nestorius was excommunicated with all of his other heretics.
And they went and they set up some monasteries in the Arab world. At that point in time, the church and the Roman Empire are synonymous in many ways. And so when you were kicked out of the church, you're kicked out of the Roman Empire. So Nestorius and his followers who don't have a biblical view of the deity of Christ, who don't see Jesus as God the way the Bible teaches him, go and set up a monastery. And that is the monastic community that Muhammad goes to. So Muhammad, his interaction with Christianity in these formative years is one of a Christian community that does not hold to the deity of Jesus in a biblical way. Muhammad continues to grow up. Um, He becomes a family man. Uh, He has... Now, some people will call Muhammad a pedophile because he has wives that are nine years old. We have to be very careful there because we always want to be fair and as Christians, we hold to truth. The system was set up where you had, Muhammad had countless wives. That doesn't make all of them sexual partners. Family leaders, men, would have as wives daughters or children who were orphaned. And it just meant they had a responsibility to provide for them. So he had a huge family with lots of wives though that doesn't mean wife in the sense that we think about it, that spanned a lot of ages. And he becomes a pretty powerful fella. He's well known for being honest and forthright in his dealings. He is, uh, as a clan leader, uh, picked to rebuild the, the cube. The cube is broken down. A storm had come in and busted up the cube. And they had a big drawing about who was going to get to rebuild it. And, 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 and Muhammad got to rebuild one of the walls, one of the four walls. And then the question was, who gets to put the stone back in? And they said, the first one to walk in is going to get to put the stone in. And that happened to be Muhammad. But it's a tribute to his wisdom that instead of just doing it himself, he said, let's put it on a cloth and let's have the four big families that built the cube each carry a corner of the cloth to put it in. So Muhammad is, is, is this. Now, in 609, as Muhammad's approaching his 40th birthday, he's struggling because he believes there's only one God, but he's having trouble figuring out the 360 idols. So he goes to Mount Hira and he goes off by himself. And while he's there, he says he hears the angel Gabriel tell him, right, right. And he goes to one of his wives who happened to be Jewish. So what do you think I ought to do? She said, well, I guess that may be the voice of God. Maybe you should write. So supposedly Muhammad goes back to the mountain. And hears the voices again. And over the next several years writes what later 
is becoming the Quran. Now, the Quran itself is not in the hand. We don't have a copy of the Quran written in Muhammad's handwriting. The Quran, ultimately, as we've got it, is written down from sayings collected from Muhammad by his followers. But supposedly, these are the sayings that were given to Muhammad on the mountain. Now, a fundamental tenet of the Islamic faith is that Muhammad was the prophet of God, the final prophet, the big prophet, prophet with a capital P. And the Islamic faith historically has taught that Jesus even prophesied that Muhammad would come. Okay, this is one of these Sundays where the Bible I brought is electronic. But that's okay. I think we can make this work. Does that work? Can you all see? Yeah, that works, doesn't it? Look at this. John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now, the Muslim world teaches that this helper is Muhammad. But the Muslim world did not come to our life group Greek class, which many of you, I hope, will come to. We'll start in the middle of August. And one of the things we'll learn in the life group Greek class is that this word, helper, is the Greek word, I'm going to write it in English here, paraclete, with a long E, paraclete, not a parakeet, a paraclete. Okay, if we are to look in the Greek, here is the same passage, John 14, verse 16, and here is the word P-A-R. I know it looks like a, a P, but that's, that's the letter. Get, get your Greek alphabet out. See that letter right there? That's an R. Just looks like a P. P-A-R-A-K-L, and that thing that looks like an N with uh, dribbling down from the chin a little bit is is the long E. It's an ADA. So that's P-A-R-A-K-L long E. Then we on the next line, T-O. And this is just an, an ending. It's ignore it. It's generally an S in the in the standard form of the word. In fact, Jesus uses it again. In, uh, um, let's see, where is it? It's over here. Uh, and I will ask the Father, and he will, verse 26. Verse 26, it says, uh, the parakletos. P-A-R-A-K-L-A-T-O-S. Now, you look at that, paraclete. Paraclete 
is a great Greek word. You want to know who Jesus was going to send? Ask the Father and have him send? This right here is a Greek-English dictionary. It, bless you, it doubles as a workout. Okay? Now, I can, look, look, this, this thing is a honker, man. It is huge. It's got all these Greek words in it and where they're used and everything. And I can flip over to page 1313. It's in alphabetical order. Of course, it's a dictionary. 1313. Now you're saying, I can't even, this book's so stinking big, you can't even put it under the microscope. So we're going to do it this way. We'll put the microscope on the book. We're coming in. Now, here is this word, paraclesis. Let's zoom in a little bit. Paraclesis. And we want the form that's paraclete, paracletos. So it's going to be down here. I've already marked it. Paracletos. You got the para up there. There's kletos. What does it say? Called to one's aid in a court of justice. An advocate. A legal assistant. A paraclete is a lawyer. (laughs) A counselor at law. An advocate. Someone who's going to help you with your legal problem with God. Because you got a legal problem with God. And nothing personal to the Muslim world. But Muhammad isn't going to help. Jesus is sending you a lawyer. An advocate. That's what the word means. Now, you're saying, well, why would the Muslim world think that's Jesus? I mean, uh, Muhammad. Okay. Remember, I told you there's a huge difference between the Greek-Roman world and the Arab tribes? Okay. They had a different alphabet. They had a different language. They don't even read the same direction. One's left to right, one's right to left. They hear this Greek New Testament, Parakletos, and they say it's naming Mohammed. Why do they say that? Because there's another Greek word, Klee, it's a long U or a Y, cleat. It's a whole different Greek word. Instead of P A R A K L, long E T E, which is The lawyer, with this Greek word, it's P, 
E R I K L U T E. And that's what translates into Muhammad. It means someone who's worthy of praise or famous. Which is what Muhammad means. So the Muslim world doesn't hear the Greek right, doesn't know Greek. And they think that the passage that's talking about the promised Holy Spirit is promising Muhammad. What they should have realized is that's on page 1377. It's 64 pages away in the dictionary. 1377. Here it is. Paracletos. Instead of Paracletos, Paracletos. P-E-R-I-K-L-U-T-O-S, which means famous or renowned, worthy of praise. So they weren't good Greek scholars. And I don't mean that to offend anybody. It's just the facts. Now, they might have gotten that anyway if they'd have read past that passage in John. Because look what he says about the lawyer. This is another helper, someone called alongside to be with you forever. Even, and the Greek means he is, the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him and it doesn't know him. You know him. Get that out of the way. You know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and will be in you. How did the Holy Spirit dwell with them? With them. He was in Jesus. But the promise was he wouldn't just be with them in the sense of Jesus, but he'd actually be in the believer, which is what we have. If you go to verse 26, that other passage, it's pretty clear who he's talking about for the lawyer. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the lawyer, the advocate, the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things. Whoops, I have a leadership meeting in 15 minutes. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. He goes on to say in the next chapter, when the helper comes, when the lawyer comes, he will bear witness to me, Jesus. Not anyone else. Okay, um, so we go back to the PowerPoint. So, the prophet. Now, when Muhammad has this experience, he starts teaching there's only one God. And the Islamic word, the Arab word for God is Allah. Allah is not a name for God, it's God. There is only one God. If you want to speak Arabic, you would say there's only one God. 
But it's not the Allah that Muhammad revealed that we as Christians believe in because we don't think Muhammad was actually hearing what Muhammad and his followers believe he heard. Now, Muhammad starts telling everybody about this in Mecca and they try to kill him. Remember, Mecca's got 360 idols and it's the reason all of the tribes are coming to to Mecca on a regular basis. It's the financial machine for the city. So Muhammad comes in and says, hey, there's just one God. And they say, that's, that's going to ruin the economy. Okay, you're like, this is bad. Get rid of Muhammad. So he flees to Medina. Now in the process, he starts converting lots of people to his belief. And he goes to war against all of the other Muslims who are the pagans, not Muslims, all the other Arabs that are the pagans with their different gods. And he starts winning. Doesn't win all of his battles, but he wins enough. And he goes to war and he's establishing an empire himself. He has a showdown with some Christians later in his life. And he says, come on, we'll have a contest to see whose God's the greatest. The Christians back out at the last minute and said, look, can we just not live peaceably if we pay you some money? And so Muhammad declares that Christians and Jews can continue to live in his land if they'll pay a tax. Now, within the framework of this, we'll pursue it more next week because next week I want to really compare the Christian faith to the five pillars of belief of Islam. And you're going to see there are some radical differences between them. Muhammad dies. There are fights over who's going to be his successor. There's a little bit more history we'll need to unpack The differences between a Sunni Muslim and a Shiite. How all of this fits in with the Palestinian Arabs and non-Palestinian Arabs. We'll look at all of this next week, I hope. But right now, I want to talk about the fruit for home. In John 16 is where John again uses that word. When the spirit of truth comes the paraclete, the lawyer. He will guide you into all truth. He will bring glory, Jesus said, to me. Now, the helper, the lawyer, the paraclete is not Muhammad. The paraclete's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work, job, mission is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It is to convict women and men of the sin that we have, of the righteousness that is God's, and of the way the price for our sin can be paid. He is the lawyer who brings you the deal, explaining to you how in a courtroom... You have been made right by God. 
You know, there are lots of lawyer words and courtroom words used in our New Testament. In Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And that word accuser, he's the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus is the one who has paid the price, but it's the Holy Spirit who is communicating that to you and to me. The Holy Spirit's not just an idea. The Holy Spirit is not Muhammad. The Holy Spirit is not a human being. The Holy Spirit is not a prophet. The Holy Spirit is God. God who can dwell within a born-again, redeemed person who is walking in a new life that is set free from the curse of sin and death. And those are all biblical images. And so my fruit for home, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to treasure. I don't know if you were in church this morning and heard Leah Holder. Mercy. What an incredible, incredible uh, testimony to the Lord. So eloquently put. But I want to tell you, I want my life to be one that knows the Holy Spirit is there and seeks after the things that are the Holy Spirit. I, I want the value in my life to be God's value. I want the value in whom I see to be God's value. Number two. These last two points for home, I really want to spend a moment on. So please look at this carefully. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And in the 15th chapter of his letter, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel on which you have taken your stand. Now, the Greek word gospel, euangelios, is the good message, the good news. I want to remind you of the fantastic news on which you've taken your stand. By this fantastic news, you are saved. And here it is. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day. Can I go to the Elmo? This is really, really important. We need to understand that Paul is using a word that our Bibles translate gospel. It means the great message. The good news. And here is the great message for Paul. When Paul speaks of the gospel, he doesn't mean one of the first four books of the New Testament. When Paul speaks of the gospel, the gospel means the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for our sins. Whoops. That's what he means. You with me? You got it? All right, that's important. And I want you to repeat it after me because then we're going to go to the last point for home. 
Repeat it after me. When, when Paul says gospel, he means the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That's where we stand. So our point for home, I'm going to stand on the gospel, but now we're going to the last verse for home. Here it is. Paul told the Galatians the following. If we or an angel from heaven on Mount Hera should preach to you a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. If Muhammad had been in my Sunday school class and Muhammad had said to me, I've been on the mountain and someone said to me, right. My question would be, what did they want you to write? Because if it is a gospel contrary to that which Paul preached, you're not writing God's message. No matter how devoted you are and how much you you believe in it. Because when Paul says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one... What does Paul mean by gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for us. And if someone preaches to you any way to heaven other than that, they're walking under the curse of Paul. Not where I'd want to be. I want to teach the gospel. I want to teach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That my attorney has told me is all sufficient and making me right before the Lord God himself. Would you? Amen, God. Absolutely. Can I bless you in prayer? Father, we we ask an anointing on each person here, not an anointing from me, not one from my words, not one from anything I say or don't say. Lord, we want an anointing from your Holy Spirit. We want a deep conviction that Jesus Christ died on our behalf in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, resurrected on the third day, sits enthroned, interceding on our behalf. And I pray your blessing of conviction and your blessing of peace and acceptance on my friends and my family here. And on all who hear this message, it's our prayer through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.